place you can find a raucous card game, a bar brawl, a boisterous tavern song, or a dark corner to sulk, where patrons respect all types, except anyone with a noble's attitude of entitlement. A guild taken over by the Free City Council, whose former leader is imprisoned in the Citadel for murder. A new shipping guild arose nearly overnight and constructed ramshackle buildings and driftwood docks on a river island long abandoned. A moving market that is never in the same place each week and is protected with magical camouflage to remain hidden from the prying eyes of the City Watch. Hey Midgardians, I'm Clay. And I'm Joe. Welcome to that Midgard show. This is a podcast where we talk about the Midgard campaign setting published by our friends at Cobalt Press. In this episode, we continue our tour of Zobek's Dock District, one of the busiest and rowdiest areas of the Free City. It's located in the northernmost part of Zobek, and it is busy all hours of the day. Its taverns, gambling dens, and bordellos stand beside warehouses, dry docks, and other industries of the water trade. Brawls are common, and the watch tend to patrol the area heavily to ensure the smooth continuation of commerce. But before we get into that, let's talk about some of our adventures in Midgard. Joe, have you been adventuring lately? Uh, you know what? I have. Um, sort yeah. of have. Uh, I'm excited because I've talked about before how I was going to start a solo game with my daughter, and we finally got that going. So... Uh, it's just a one-on-one game that we're kind of playing at home. Uh, so it, it, in this one, she is a uh, bounty hunter uh, and a warlock, a hunter in the darkness warlock. So I think I've talked about this character, this build maybe mm -hmm. before, but uh, it's it's fun. Like she, you know, I helped her write her backstory. Really, she did most of the work on her backstory. But you know, I kind of encouraged her, showed her some videos on how to create a good backstory and a good character. And she did a fantastic job she's 11 she's turning 12 later this month so uh this is a great age i feel like to really start playing dd more by the rules and less um you know how you might play with kids where you just kind of handle a lot of stuff so i'm really teaching her to play properly now um but we kind of you know we start we're starting in zobek so it was perfect that we've been doing these episodes because it's really kind of helped me with some clarity on how I wanted to do this. So we actually started in the Dock Districts in uh, Bangada's Radiance, uh, since she's playing a Shadow Fae, which is a Midgardian race from the Shadow Realm. I'm using these ideas that we talked about really in our last episode with Madame Petra, that she has a Shadow Portal or a portal to the Shadow Realm in her quarters. And my daughter's character, Zarel, uses it when she needs to return to the, shadow, uh, the Realm of Shadows. Her and Madame Petra are, are friendly with each other. They're not exactly like, you know, friends, friends, but they're friendly with, with each other. And Madame Petra helps her get work. And in this case, she sent her to Sergeant uh, Hendrick, which you can find in the Clockwork City book on page 108. He's a city guard sergeant. And he sends it to him to get some info on a thief that's been stealing from some of the wealthy citizens. And uh, he tells her about a possible jewel heist he's heard about in the merchant district. So she goes over there and talks to the shop owner who says, hey, you know, I saw some shadowy figure kind of casing the joint across this alley. So she heads over there and at first she doesn't see anything. And then these two bandits ambush her and she actually defeats them and finds a key that had a little like keychain on it that showed like a scabbard, like a you know, sword scabbard with a piece of silk around it. Letter to the silk scabbard. And there she encounters some resistance and is threatened by members of the um, of one of the, the you know, city's uh, gangs. Uh, the Cloven Nine. Uh, and that's kind of where we left off. So 
we, you know, we only played for maybe about an hour and a half, two hours. It wasn't a very long session. It's still set up on the table to play again today, actually. But uh, it was fun, and, and just seeing how she reacted, like, she's being very straightforward and not really thinking about, like, oh, should I say this, shouldn't I? She's just kind of throwing it all out there, and I'm kind of punishing her a little bit for it and, and making her learn from some of these mistakes early on. So it's been fun, and, I, like, we talk about it afterwards, and, like, you could do this, you could do that. So she's learning, and it's great. But more important than all of that, this is the best news because I am very happy and proud to say that she has started DMing her very first game this past week. Um, so very, very excited about that. She did just a little one-on-one game with a friend from school. Uh, she's been bringing you know, a couple of things to school with her, and they're playing during lunch. So I gave her one of my pre-made characters from the starter set and a book uh, that's built as a solo adventure that uh, a friend of mine, uh, Ben, at uh, Paysetter Games had done. Uh, that's specifically a solo adventure. So she's running that right now. It's not Midgard specific, but it's getting her a feel for DMing. And she's she's definitely into the Midgard setting. So I think once she starts DMing for a group, uh, she'll probably end up in Midgard. So super cool, super proud. Uh, she's done two sessions, I think, of that one now, and it's going really, really well. So, yeah. That is so cool. I mean, the future of the game is is the uh, new players. And, yeah. Uh, you know, my daughter plays. Uh, she was the one that got me back into playing uh, D and D. She's kind of been, you know, on a hiatus. You know, right uh-huh. now, you know, she just wanted to take a break, particularly, you know, after you know she graduated college. And uh, but you know, she's looking to get back into the game. She just saw the D and D movie, uh, gave yeah. it a resounding five stars. So, um, you know, with your uh, recommendation, her recommendation, and somebody else, and a bunch of other people. Who, who say they love the the movie? I'm gonna have to break down and go see it. You know, so I'm yeah. A couple of my it. friends that like we were like, oh, we go see it together. They already went and saw it. And so because uh, I played last night with like one of my other groups, um, that was a you know a fun little session. But the DM had gone and seen it, and he's like, I didn't call you. I should have called you. I'm like, yeah, you should have. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. one of the fr- my friends from my main group that I run for, um, that my you know my bigger game is in. One of them went and saw it, so we're still gonna get a big group together to go see it, though. So that'll be good. Yeah, for movies, you know, especially ones around uh, a lot of lore and a lot of backstory, you know, kind of like Star Wars, Star Trek, you know, D and D. I go for the ride. You know, I'm not gonna uh, scrutinize every single spell they cast or every monster, you know, in it. You know, I'm just gonna uh, enjoy the adventure as if I'm. Uh, yeah. If I'm watching it on a YouTube channel or something. Like but that, that was the thing, right? Like I recognized the spells they were casting. Like, oh, that's magic missile. That's meteor storm. That you know, like you know, you it was all recognizable, which was kind of fun for a D and D player when you're there. You know, I don't, we're not going to talk spoilers, but you'll be you can call stuff out. You're like, oh, I know what spell that is. Oh, I know what they're doing there. Like it, it kind of fit and it was cool. Julie, my daughter, kind of described going to the movie as like going to a Rocky Horror Picture Show. You know, yeah. there's a lot of audience participation. And, uh, and and there are some people that even came in cosplay as, as some of their characters, you know. So that was kind of fun to hear about, you know, as uh, well. That, unfortunately, I didn't get that experience at the pre-screening we went to because we went last week. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it was a pretty tame crowd, unfortunately. I mean, we were, everybody was laughing and stuff. But I, I would have been fun if there was a bunch of people yelling at the screen. <laughs> So what about you, man? Uh, any any games going on? What's up with uh, with Curse of Strahd and all that? Hey, Curse of Strahd is uh, is is really starting to heat up. Our our heroes have decided that they need to get out of out of old Bone Grinder and uh, grab the rescued kids and uh, just leave and head to Velaki to return the kids 
uh, to the the orphanage. Uh, so they gathered them all up. You know, they they ran up the stairs, and lo and behold, as soon as they get there, uh, Gertruda, the Annis Hag, uh, was blocking their way out. So true to form, you know, my 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 heroes like to uh, concentrate their attacks on on single. NPCs. And so they just started to attack her in mass. And and Gertruda, knowing that she's going to get killed if she doesn't uh, hightail it out of there, she dropped Fog Cloud and filled up the whole bottom floor of the uh, mill and just kind of disappeared. When when the cl- Fog Cloud dissip- dissipated, you know, they headed outside and they were met immediately by Bella or Mor- Morgantha, who resumed the attacks on our heroes. Because they have something important to them. They have their ingredients, you know, all those kids. And uh, so, you know, Morgantha started raining magic missile on them and Bella, the green hag, uh, you know, started in uh, with them as well. So just to kind of remind everybody of the antagonist we've been talking about, I've been talking about bone grinder for a while. So Bella is our super serious, proud baker. She's a green hag. She's like one of those uh, contestants on the British Bake Off. She really loves and, and takes pride in her work. Uh, Morgantha, on the other hand, you know, she's uh, marketing and ingredients procurement, and uh, she, she's a night hag. And Gertruda, due to her size and strength as an anis hag, she operates the millstone since the sails and wind shaft no longer work. So she's the one grinding the uh, the bones into right. powder. But, you know, back to the fight, you know, for, to protect the children, Irina and Ashlyn moves them inside, back inside the windmill and positions themselves near the uh, entrance uh, to protect them. Irina and Ashlyn, they're my DMPCs, and uh, they, they're kind of tag-alongs uh, with, with the party. The two hags lay onto the PCs, so the PCs start in on Bella, and they kind of knocked her out of the fight uh, pretty quick. But then Gertruda reappears right behind them, flanking them, and uh, she uh, begins her attacks on them as well. But something unexpected and super cool happens. A richly decorated black coach, gilded in gold, uh, pulled by four black horses with fiery manes, essentially nightmares. Right. Uh, and it was driven by a humanoid wearing a plague mask. That uh, whole entourage just pulls up in front of the windmill. And once once the uh, uh, teamster uh, pulls the the horses to a stop, a flock of bats just erupt, you know, from the co- coach. And, uh, and then kind of coalesce near the group into this tall man with black hair and wearing the clothes of a high-ranking noble. Immediately, Morgantha and Gertruda fall to the ground and kowtows towards that man. And you hear Morgantha, oh, my Lord Strahd, we're honored by your visit to our humble home. And, you know, Strahd kind of just stares at him for a little bit. And he just says, I know what you're up to in this windmill, Morgantha, and I will not stand for that. Now, Here's here's the interesting part of this visit. Hearing Strahd's name from Morgantha gets Geisel's attention, who's one of my PCs. And yeah. it was just a day ago that the wilderness fane of the megaliths, you know, the megaliths down below the uh, windmill, gave her a vision of what Barovia was in the past. She learned about Morgantha's origin story and how a fierce general arrived to conquer the land and become its ruler. But the other the thing was that uh, the Wilderness Fane also revealed the face of Strahd, who has the likeness of a member of her party. But Geisel's wondering if she's misled because the person standing before her is a man, not a woman. 
the uh, hmm. Thane uh, basically said, you know, one of the female members of your party is Strahd. That was kind of in the back of her mind, you know, as she was uh, role playing the scene. So, you know, Strahd, you know, being all hoity toity and, uh, and, you know, arrogant, powerful guy, he walks around and looks at each of the uh, PCs uh, right in the eye, you know, kind of sizing them up. And, and he stops with Geisel for a while and has a conversation with her and, uh, you know, asks her a lot of questions about where she's from and why she's here and, and, uh, things like that. He finishes and he walks away and, and stands right uh, above Morgantha. And he just says, you will stop what you're doing below old Bolden Grinder immediately to keep your current franchise. And he, he tells her, if I have to visit again, I will put an end to it. I will put an end to you and I will put an end to your coven. And from there, he turns around and leaves. The hags uh, scurry off. And the uh, PCs grab the kids and they get the hell out of old bone grinder and start heading to the locky. It is crazy how a, uh, an appearance from Strahd just like makes everything tingle. Was this his first appearance in the game? The very first one. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like him showing up. It's just always like, Oh, <laughs> like everybody just freaks out. Cause they're like, we cannot fight him yet. We cannot fight him yet. What are we going to do? <laughs> I didn't That's know what awesome. to expect from the from the party. You know, I was prepared for a yeah. fight. I was prepared for a lot of role playing. Um, I I think for the most part, players you know were a little confounded and and not sure what to do, and uh, they didn't want to kind of tempt fate. You know, because they knew, yeah, they knew that uh, Strahd is powerful, and uh, and because they had the kids with them, you know, they were out of sight. They didn't want to put right. the uh, kids in danger. So that's my my. Uh, that's that's my suspicion of uh, why, why the players played the scene like they did. Uh, that's so cool, man! I love hearing about Strahd encounters because, like, very like very rarely do I hear about the Strahd combat. Like those are cool, but just the Strahd encounters because he does show up and taunt the players throughout the adventure, and they're they're just the best stories. Like they always make for the best D and D stories. Like remember that time Strahd came and started talking to us and like you right. did that thing <laughs> like. They're always great stories. He is, he's got to be one of the absolute just best characters in D and D lore like, ever written more so than, than Asarak or, you know, uh, uh, Ven- you know, Ven- what's his Vecna. name? Vecna. Yeah. yeah. Like he's just, he's just the best villain. Not maybe he might not be the most powerful villain, but he's just the best villain. Cause it's like the monologues, the, the, the appearance, the, the attitude, just the whole, he portrays. He, he puts out a vibe that is just, just villain, just perfect villain. Yeah, definitely the best. It, it, it certainly knocked Geisel, you know, because for for the last several sessions, Geisel was openly accusing uh, a member of her party as as being a vampire. And I'm curious to hear how this all plays out. Yeah, now. I like, mean, she even went she even went so far as to walk up to one of them and says, "I want to smell your breath." <laughs> that blew my mind. I was like, she wants to smell the 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 character's breath. Everybody eat the garlic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it, it's been a good time. You know, uh next uh, couple episodes, you know, I'm going to jump to our Southlands campaign that's uh that's uh, winding cool. up its story arc finally and uh and it's been uh, a, a lot of fun as well. Nice. Yeah. 
hopefully next next time we get together, I'll get to talk about my Midgard campaign because we're about ready to pull the trigger. And I think we might try to play next Saturday. So we'll see what That's happens. That's awesome. So, so to our audience, you know, if you're not in a game, uh, head over to Midgard Adventures. There, there's a uh, invite to uh, to uh, Midgard Adventures in the uh, description section. And there's always a game uh, going. You know, we've got a lot of one shots uh, that happen. We've got a lot of games where the GM will write a multi-part uh, adventure. Um, our campaigns are usually invitation only, uh, but uh, there's always a game going on, and I do encourage you to come. If you're yeah. familiar with Roll20, you know, there's a game uh, uh, available for that. Uh, we also have GMs that run on Foundry and uh, Shard as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you're interested in doing like what Clay's doing here with Curse of Strahd, uh, or some of the other official fifth edition adventures, we do have channels that tell you, like, kind of are there to help you convert that to a Midgard setting if that's something you want to do. So lots of good stuff on the server. Yeah, exactly. So, Joe, how about we get it back into the Dock District? Let's do it, man. I'm excited. I like the Dock District. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, as we told you last episode, the Dock District is one of the busiest areas and most important uh, parts of the Free City. Uh, the docks are on the north part of the city. You know, even though when you look at the map, it uh, shows south on the left and north on the right. You know, it's it's due north. Uh, those docks uh, line the uh, River Argent, and they are the center of the city's trade. It is as important to them as the uh, traffic on the Great Northern Road as well. So, you know, the uh, the the money that is made uh, and brought to the city of Zobek is is very important uh, part of their economy. Um, there's a bunch of dock, a uh, bunch of locations in the dock district. Of course, there's docks. Uh, there's warehouses to store goods. Uh, there's taverns for people to blow off steam, uh, inns to stay in, fighting pits to, uh, gamble on or actually participate in it. And of course, you know, there's vice, you know, there's plenty of bordellos, uh, there for, uh, everyone in your party. As I said, the city's wealth depends on the smooth functioning of the district. So any attempt to disrupt the flow of goods and coin is considered a very serious crime in Zobek. Uh, commerce is taken so seriously that if if anyone attacks a bard captain, even kills a bard captain, th- those folks are usually or sometimes charged with treason. And uh, if if the crime is bad enough, you know, beheaded. And uh, so that's how serious they 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 take uh, the uh, tr- the commerce that happens from the district. So the district has wars, alleys, thoroughfares. They see traffic from merchants, bargemen, stevedores at all hours. You know, so there's always something going on in the dock district. And to thrive in this area means that you also have to be pretty tough uh, to be a stevedore, a sailor, or, or a warehouse worker. And uh, there's always disagreements. And those disagreements are usually handled at the end of the fist, you know, typical of, of that area. So brawls are common, and the watch tend to patrol the area heavily during the day to discourage brawling and to ensure the smooth continuation of commerce. Uh, at night, your average person doesn't want to be there. They take the dock district takes on a very different character after dark. Uh, in in particularly in the area called the Gullet, which is near the uh, Collegium district. You know, it's kind of on the northeast side, and that's where many of the gangs have their headquarters and dens. And so at night, you know, the watch rarely ventures down these streets. And uh, everyone uh, guarding the warehouses and counting houses uh, in the area keeps the doors uh, locked, the shutters closed up, the windows tightly sealed. They have uh, a a system there. So, you know, if you keep up your payments to a gang, 
gangs will not break into that building and they will protect uh, your establishment from other gangs as well. So the buildings there, they're tough, they're worn, uh, they're, they're built quickly and they're used frequently. And the uh, houses, uh, there, there are people that actually live in the dock district. And it's kind of funny how the, how the Clockwork City book kind of talks about how the houses are typically waddle and drab construction. Uh, although the warehouses are brick and uh, better guarded. So I had to look up waddle and drab. And it, it's, a, it's a composite building method used for making walls and buildings. They use woven lattice. Uh, that they uh, hook up in between timbers. And you've seen this. It kind of looks like that Tudor style. Uh, and then they just fill it in with uh, material, you know, sticky material made out of wet soil, clay, sand, animal dung, and straw. And it's a good, cheap, ec economical method of building walls. And it's also a good insulator. So, you know, other than the warehouses and the, the houses apart slash apartments, uh, the majority of the businesses in this district are service-oriented and support the uh, people who work and live in the dock district. And so last episode, you know, we talked a lot about uh, taverns and inns. So in this episode, we're going to mix it up and start with some of the guilds and markets that operate in the dock district. So, you know, let's get it on. Joe, where would you like to start? I kind of like uh, Ragman Alley. So Ragman Alley is, uh, there, there's not a lot written on this, okay? But if, if you look, I think it's on page 61 in the Clockwork City book. It's basically this narrow alley between clusters of these ramshackle tenements in the poorest block in the district. So Ragman Alley got its name from the junkmen, the thieves, and just the most destitute of Zobeckers that kind of linger there. I kind of think of this as the skid row of Zobeck. Like this is not the greatest place to be to be walking around. I feel like you, you'll end up with a knife in your back or at least getting mugged or something like that. But it, it's avoided by everyone except just the most downtrodden and desperate. Those that accidentally stumble upon it pay for their folly, uh, you know, in coin and blood, as they say in the book. Uh, so it, it, like I said, not not a place you really want to be unless you have to be. The city guard refuses to go in there except in large numbers and they'll never go after dark. So the whole vibe they give is do not enter. <laughs> um, <laughs> common, common people there, you're, that's where you're going to find rat folk, uh, are, are probably the most common people that are going to live there. Uh, there's like these crumbling buildings that line the alley, so they'll kind of be in there. Uh, there might be some raven folk, and then, yeah, there will be some humans and dwarves or even elf marked there that are maybe just downtrodden and, and you know, have had some bad uh, bad luck, you know, luck and bad go at it lately. Um other creatures uh, live here as well, kind of skulking in those abandoned apartments, hiding amongst uh, the citizens huddled in doorways beneath makeshift tents, uh, preying on Zobek's you know, least fortunate. Uh, they, they choose their victims very carefully to avoid detection, and uh, they'll quickly go into hiding uh, if, if anybody kind of is, is arises suspicion on them. Um, so they, they try to not get caught. In the game, this could be an ideal place to lure the party into a trap. Also, if the party are seeking out rat folk for some kind of quest, this would be a good place to look. I kind of pictured, like, maybe getting into it with a rat folk and then just rat folk coming out from everywhere and just surrounding the party, possibly capturing them. It could lead to some interesting encounters. But if your party does go here for any reason, they should be on their guard. Like, the party might not appear to be easy targets because generally what these people are going to go for is the easy target. But they may also appear to be kind of a wealthier target and worth that risk, right? They're they're carrying weapons, they got armor, they got bags of gold. 
you know, yeah, they look well-armed, but they also look like a good scorer if you can get away with it. So a lot can happen in this little alleyway area. Uh, so, you know, go there with caution would be, you know, my suggestion for that. I don't, have you have you ever visited this alley with your party? Yeah, I've I've used it as as a place to uh, have a portal or an okay. entrance to the undercity. I've I've also okay. uh, used it as uh, as where Winter's Kiss, the Shadowfay Embassy, uh, mm-hmm. is located. Uh, the Shadowfay industry appears in different places in Zobek. So you know, even on the map, you know, uh, the Zobek map, you see one particular location. But you know, I decided to put it in Ragman's Alley. You know, just so. Just to throw the PCs off. I mean, how would you expect an embassy of the Shadow Fay to be located in such a downtrodden area? So for sure. So not a lot is written about it, but it's it's really your opportunity as a GM to do something more with it. There's the black market, not the black market, but there's that moving market. We mentioned it in our little intro um, that appears yeah. in a lot of places. Yeah. I know it, it can appear at uh, Madame Petra's place. This would be another good spot that it could show up for a day or two because it just kind of they, they travel around, so they're never in one spot twice. So it's another good spot to maybe throw that that market, you know, that moving market. Yeah. So places that don't have a lot of lore in the book, these are opportunities for you to really uh, do what you want with it. Again, you know, if you add something that's just completely not there, I can assure you, you're not going to break Midgard. Yeah. That it's intentional, by the way. They wrote it that way intentionally, so you could do that. It's one thing I've always liked about Cobalt Press is they purposely leave some of this stuff more vague because they don't want to overdo it so that you feel like you can't do something like they leave it vague so that you can make it yours So definitely take yeah. advantage. So, so just like you suggested, Joe, uh, uh, Ragman alley can be an excellent location for the smugglers market, though not a market in the traditional sense, goods and services are nonetheless exchanged for coins at the smugglers market with startling frequency. It commonly shares spaces in warehouses, and back rooms of legitimate business concerns with or without the permission of those markets. Uh, but uh, the smuggler's market can be uh, anywhere you want. The market runs after hours and always wraps up by dawn, uh, always to stay ahead of the authorities. And uh, it employs at least two employees uh, that are present at any time, and you can make them whatever you want. But uh, it, the market is operated by a Ravenfolk woman named Morana Dusklow. She has a striking pattern of white splashed across her deep black feathers, which, you know, makes her really noticeable. And she provides space for any and all organizations that are willing to pay her money. But she has no loyalty to any one group. You know, if you got right. coin and if, and if she has space, uh, she'll allow you to uh, sell your wares and your services as well. Uh, she doesn't allow violence. And the smugglers market is one of the few places where members of opposing groups can be found in the same room together without blood being spilt. So think of this as kind of like holy ground, a place to uh, for uh, rival gangs to uh, gather to uh, negotiate and and, uh, and and come to an agreement on something, uh, right. because they don't want to fight. You know, they want access to uh, uh, Marana's uh, market, and uh, if you get into a fight, you're banned. Done. You're done. That is bad because criminals don't like to be shunned. It's bad for business. And it's also bad to uh, be on, on Morana's uh, bad side. And so she hides the market. You know, she, she uh, is able to utilize illusion magic uh, to uh, kind of conceal the uh, floating market. 
and uh, and also kind of to keep keep uh, the uh, city watch looking in different places and so forth. Um, the exact setup will differ from week to week depending on the site, and but the typical operation will provide a series of smaller rooms for private dealings and a larger space for storage and auctions. Uh, there's multiple escape routes just in case the city watch find find their way in there. Uh, and she always ensures that it's located in a place uh, with easy access to the cartways, uh, just in case uh, she and her uh, employees, you know, need to kind of make themselves scarce. So like the market in the cartways, you can really use this as a place to house uh, some of the strangest markets you can imagine. And again, do make it your own. Figure something out, something crazy, and, uh, and, and pop it there. Uh, it'll be, it'll be fun for your PCs, but there's one business that is always at the smugglers market and it's called Jan's most expedient carriages. It's, uh, it's operated by a dwarf mage whose name is Jan Wonderdelver. And he re he recently opened his stall and it's kind of a strange stall. It consists of a single ornate carriage made of glossy black stained mahogany and gilded silver. Kind of as hoity-toity as Strahd's, you know, carriage, you know, when he pulled up in front of the old bone grater. But here, here's the cool thing about that carriage. The interior of it acts as a teleportation circle, and it, it's it's used to move goods. Uh, it's used to move people. And he has, he Jan has memorized a bunch of signal sequence for the teleportation circles. Um, in the book, you know, it, it describes Trombe in the Seven Cities, uh, Sav Savonet in uh, Varigny, Var uh, Bemia in the Majocracy of Alain, uh, Bad Solitz in the Grand Duchy of Dornig, uh, the Free City of Seawall in the Southlands, and Stanisgard in the Northlands. So if you need to move your party uh, from one location to the other, this is where you take them to do that. And you don't have to, again, be limited to uh, the locations in the book. You can play it up where... Uh, the party would have to be charged more for a location that uh, Jan doesn't typically support. Uh, or you can just add it to the list. It doesn't matter. Yeah. But Jan charges 150 gold pieces for each person that is transported and 20 gold pieces per pound for cargo. So that is a lot of money. Uh, a lot to, of cash. A uh, lot of cash. And there's no haggling. Either present the gold or or not. If you happen to be a dwarf or a gnome of any gender and Jan uh, finds you attractive, he may knock it down to maybe, you know, as low as 100 gold pieces. Uh, but, you know, Jan's kind of a creepy dude and uh, you, you may, uh, your, your character may have to put up with his uh, unwanted advances. So, you know, Jan's creepy. His lechery can go wrong in so many ways. So, if you're going to uh, introduce that trope as part of your games, you know, just be careful with it. You know, don't go go nuts with it. I, I honestly didn't know about this uh, for uh, some games I've played in Zobek. If I'd known about this, it would have made it easier for you to move them from place to place. So um, if they had this the was a part of Zobek that I, I just learned about, you know, because of the show. Yeah. Yeah, no, it it that's neat. I I did not know about that one either. I mean, the the Spellers Market's cool because, like you said, it moves around. I know we talked about it being in Bengada's Radiance. Uh, I have to look and see if they mention it in any other locations uh, around the city. But uh, it's one I haven't got to use yet in any game, so I'm definitely 
I think it, I think it's going to be a good one for my daughter's game because being a bounty hunter and stuff like that it just seems like a place she might have to go to at some point. Um, but yeah, I think it's I think it's pretty cool. I know in, in one of my other groups, um, one of the players uh, is looking for his family, and I think the smugglers market might be a, a solid spot to check out to get some information on where they are. I can't say yeah. why in case you listen to this podcast, but you know, hint hint, go to the smugglers market. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Jan also for the right amount of money, if if you're searching for somebody, maybe uh, if you find out about Jan and, and the smugglers market, you can go to him and and maybe for the right amount of coin, he can tell you whether he knows uh, that that he's transported uh, this person or he may just lie to you and say no, you know, maybe. you know, whatever, you know, so he can be a red herring or he can be a lead. Uh, yeah. But it's it, it's fun. But, uh, you know, as far as other stalls and, uh, and businesses there, grab your favorite roll table of, uh, of bazaars and businesses and things like that and lo- locate something fun, fun there. Yeah. yeah you definitely throw some cool stuff there. Yeah. What's next, Joe? Uh, so I think next up, uh, there's the uh, Bargeman's Fellowship, which is a little bit interesting. So this this thing kind of occupies a, a cluster buildings over on the west side of the district. It's kind of a, a, a strange guild in that its members do all their best work up and down the river, times far from Zobek. So it's a Zobek guild that operates mostly outside of Zobek. They maintain really close ties with the Steve Doers, working together in loading and unloading cargo. The barge workers are mostly sailors rather than dock workers. You know, because the dock workers, they stay in Zobek. They, they're working the docks. They're helping to load stuff, things like that, where the barge workers are really the, the sailors and stuff like that. So the, the guild master, this self-proclaimed barge king who was recently removed and is currently serving a two-year sentence in the Citadel for murder. However, despite his many, many faults, rumor seems to have it that he was framed for this. Though why exactly or by whom is just speculation. So uh, this does sound like kind of maybe a good hook for uh, either a prison break adventure or maybe an adventure just to clear his name. Could be a lot you can kind of do with that. So I, I definitely keep this one in the back of your mind. If your party's going to be in this area, you could definitely uh, use this as like a "we'll help you if you help us" kind of uh, a deal to help out the Barge King. However, there was a shakeup here. You know, you're the leader, the Barge King, who is a fairly powerful person. We've talked about how important the docks are, how uh, they don't deal with attacks on captains and things like that. Like the the Barge District is so important in the city. So the council made this surprising assertion of power and stepped in to ensure that the trade on the river uh, wouldn't suffer. And they basically restructured the guild's leadership and and a reevaluation of kind of trade standards. So the guild is now run by a council of three uh, to be elected yearly by the guild's active members. And the current trio that was established by the city council was this human uh, named uh, Jenna Gailey a halfling named Quinnin Wisewater, and uh, another uh, human named Johan Greymark, which Greyheart n- name you might recognize now because it's he's a distant cousin to uh, Lord Volstaff Greymark, which we've talked about. Uh, and uh, Johan likes to make sure that nobody forgets his relationship with the uh, great Lord Volstaff. So uh, probably no- annoyingly so. I can see him kind of being one of those guys who's like, yeah, my cousin, Lord Volstaff, like <laughs> kind of dropping the name all the time. 
<laughs> Probably so, a drinking game amongst the other uh, yeah, right? Like every time he says it, everybody has to drink. <laughs> but uh, any barge captain can, or any barge captain can attend the meetings and is invited to uh, join the guild and is actually expected to do so. It's not like, a, oh, if you want to join, it's like, no, you're going to join. There is a fee to join, but it's one silver piece a year. So it's not like, you know, expensive. And every barge captain who is a paying member gets a say in decisions and, and stuff like that concerning their trade. So uh, it, it is quite democratic in that sense. Uh, meetings are held bi-monthly. More often, it, 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 it's a matter, uh, like if matters require uh, urgent attention, they'll have you know, more meetings. Um, so barge captains will be, uh, that are not there, they can like appoint a proxy to attend for them. That, and this has uh, actually been good news for Riverfolk Catholic, who had previously kind of steered clear of the Barge Fellowship uh, because it was kind of sketchy and too dangerous to work with. Now they're kind of optimistic with this new change. You know, obviously the Barge King, like I said, many he, he might not be a murderer, but he has a lot of other flaws. So the, the Riverfolk Halfling were very weary of him. And now they're like, okay, you know, we, let's let's get in there and, and, and you know, be a part of this. So... Uh, Another thing that kind of recently happened was the kobold captains have started appearing at meetings. We talked about how the kobolds kind of built up a whole section on the on the water, like almost overnight. Well, they're joining now too, and you know, at first it was just a few, but their numbers are kind of getting more and more uh, as their their shipping enterprise kind of expands, and their presence is kind of making some waves. And no one knows what to do about it because they're like, yeah, I mean, they technically can be here, but they don't want them there. Um, like we said, kobolds are accepted in Zobek, but they're accepted as second-class citizens. You know, they're not treated the best, uh, but they're tolerated. So having them there, people are not liking that. So some of the members are like suggesting they change the meeting time from the evening to noon to avoid the problem entirely because, you know, I'm pretty sure kobolds have sunlight sensitivity. So maybe they won't come during the day. There's a lot going on there. I mean, it sounds pretty straightforward. It's like this little democratic group making decisions about uh, the trading industry. But that's a kind of a, when you think about how big this trade industry on the river is in Zobek, how important it is, that's actually a pretty powerful group um, that can play in with, you know, when we talked about the city council, uh, the mayor and things like that. This is a group that probably has a lot of sway in the city and decisions they make are powerful. This is a group that might hire your adventurers to help with some issue they're having that's affecting trade on the river, hire them to go down the river with a group, um, things like that. Uh, this this is not a uh, your average guild. This is a very powerful group, in my opinion, because this, this the river trade is central to Zobek. So uh, I, I, see a, I see a lot of potential there, not to mention, like I said, a, a lot of fun with Johan and drinking games. So... Yeah. Yeah, check it out. I mean, I, I haven't, like I said, my, my group has not made its way there yet, but this, I think, when they do leave the city, I think this group might definitely make an appearance. Um, and then, you know, I see the Riverfolk Halflings kind of possibly uh, either wanting the help of the party with something with this group or the group wanting their help to maybe get rid of the Riverfolk Halflings. I, I kind of see some tension there as well. So there's a lot that can happen. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing, you know, that's that's kind of, you know, something that's great about Midgard is there's always these underlying political tensions that you can yep. really use to uh, flavor your games. You know, Zobek prides themselves as this democratic, um, you know, idealistic society. 
quickly under the hood, you know, you, you see a lot of conflict between the different communities, the different races. Um, yeah. The kobolds have always been been looked at as second class citizens, but maybe it's because of their resourcefulness and their and their craftiness and their uh, will to survive or their will to do things that uh, others uh, won't won't do. And right. and so that that's kind of the fun part of this is as a GM, you know, you don't have to use combat as as that tension. You can you can establish that tension uh, with uh, with things like this. And and say you have a cobalt in your party along with uh, maybe a raven folk or winter folk or something like that. The the uh, a, ra- ra- a winter folk or excuse me a barge uh, halfling may uh, be more inclined to work closely with a cobalt who's more their height and uh, and and things like that. So yeah, lots you can do uh, with with that kind of tension. Yeah, political intrigue, I think, is a big part of, of Zobek, uh, you know, that you can have so much fun with. And, you know, the other thing, too, is, like, I drop little stuff like this to my party. Like, you know, I'll mention an attitude somebody has towards someone else or something going on just as a side note, because maybe it'll come up later, you know, or, you know, they might ignore it. But that that plot line is still building out uh, and stuff's still going on about that. So something might build up that because they, they ignored it something builds up and kind of you know boils over at some point later on or they just encounter something they're like yeah that's like the third time i heard something like that and it starts to kind of get their brain turning so it gives them different stuff to grab onto as well if they want especially if you're running more of a sandbox style game there's so much to happen in zobeck that you can sandbox with so what's next on our list well you know we talked about the kobolds uh you know starting to uh, gain membership in the yeah. in in the guilds they're starting to show up a lot more in the dock district because of a narrow strip of land that kind of divides the river. It was gutted years ago by fire, and all of the warehouses, a lot of the docks uh, were largely destroyed. And since then, nobody's done anything with it. And so the cobalt, you know, like stare at this thing and see opportunity. And so they kind of took over that uh, unused piece of land and uh, launched themselves into the river trade business. And overnight, ramshackle buildings, piers made out of driftwood, lots of flat-bottom boats piloted by novice uh, cobalt oarsmen. They started to uh, crop up and build a business to quickly move goods from point A to point B. They have thrown many tiny wrenches into the well-oiled machine that is the Zobeck river trade industry. And... Here's where they, this is where they annoyed the river folk halflings and others that have worked for, for on those waters for many years. So that's, that's kind of part of the tension in the uh, guild uh, that we talked about earlier. Uh, but uh, despite their rather chaotic business practices, the kobolds have made some headway and have picked up enough customers to encourage them to continue along their current path. And so the docks are now crawling with kobolds and it's a maze of stacked crates haphazard construction of uh, storage containers and warehouses built from whatever material is on hand. So there's no rhyme or reason to what the Cobalt clans are involved in or even who's in charge because there's always a king or queen of something. Uh, But uh, those that do go uh, asking about who's in charge, you know, they'll of course get a different answer depending on who you talk to. But currently, 
uh, visitors to the island may get pointed to a character named Trill Toothcut. And so Trill is this kobold with a big voice and an even bigger personality. He fancies himself as a shipping magnet. He dresses in his mind in a manner befitting his position. And so you'll see him wearing this oversized hat, almost looks like a big pirate hat with a feather. He's carrying a, uh, a sheaf of papers on a very important looking clipboard. He has a peacock quill, you know, to write uh, with. And and it, it's only under his guidance that the Cobalts haven't devolved into complete chaos and infighting and have instead managed to complete several jobs successfully. So Trill has been very good uh, for the area and be very good for the Cobalts because the Cobalts tend to operate not t as a group per se, but kind of in a, in a very chaotic manner. So Trill has been uh, really uh, good for this. So what can you do with that, you know, a, a, as a GM? There's a great hook in the Clockwork City book on page 58, and it, it's kind of a fun one. And and this is one that you can kind of uh, start off uh, your your adventures in Zobek with. PCs meet up with a bunch of a, a merchant family. The merchant families never really trust each other. One of them uh, is concerned about uh, a particular shipment uh, that has been sent and controlled uh, by the Cobalds. Uh, and uh, they are asked to uh, kind of discreetly explore a warehouse ran by kobolds. And so how, how are you going to discreetly do that? But, uh, but they're there to uh, uh, return a particular valuable set of alchemical fire. The trouble is when they arrive, the, the warehouse is open, the guards are dead, and the alchemical fire flasks are missing. So mm. unless the PCs act quickly a nasty string of arsons uh, start to occur the next day. And guess who's fingered for the arsons? PCs, <laughs> you know, because they are seen there at the warehouse and it is assumed that they uh, killed the uh, warehouse workers, uh, AKA the kobolds. And uh, they were witnessed as uh, robbing the warehouse, you know? So it, the hook doesn't necessarily say it has to be played on the uh, kobold uh, island. But I, I think that's kind of a fun hook uh, for that yeah. as well, because the kobolds are, are really they're, they're taking any any job that they can to really kind of build up uh, uh, the commerce for themselves in the dock district. Yeah. So that's a good opportunity too to bring maybe some uh, some some people from the blue house that we talked about, you know, into kind of threaten the PCs or maybe be after the PCs or something like that and really kind of ramp up that uh, that level of, uh, of tension of we have to figure this out before we get caught throwing the blue house because, like we said, it's not a place you want to be. <laughs> yeah. Also, a great way to get your uh, uh, PCs put in jail, yep. um, ha having to uh, prove their innocence and uh, so forth. So a lot, lot of great opportunity to, uh, for uh, protagonists and antagonists um, yeah. and to you know, uh, tell a story. Yeah, and you know, if you're one of those people who likes to make your terrain for your table, like you know, like 3D print or craft terrain, uh, if you can pull off this little island, like with the mazes of crates and ramshackle buildings and docks and all, like that would be a really fun build. If you, if anybody does that, please share a picture with us on Discord. I would love to see that build. It would be so so cool. And then you know, a little little piece of Cobalt Press trivia. Uh, for you. If you go to the Midgard map online, you will see that island empty. 
However, if you have the Clockwork City book, you'll see that that island, you know, populated with buildings on it. And we say because there was a fire. Uh, I believe that fire happened during the Pathfinder days of of uh, Zobek. That that island was left empty, and now they've started building it again as time has advanced. The reason behind that story <laughs> is because when they had the map made, the cartographer just forgot to draw the stuff on the island, and they had to come up with a reason for it. And that was the reason. So yeah. now, now they've fixed it in the, the newest version of the map. It's not on the online map yet, though. So if you do go to MidgardMap.GoldPress.com, uh, you will not see that island as populated. But if you have the physical uh, book or if, you know the PDF of the book and you look at the map, uh, you will see that island has buildings on it now. But that and so there's there's lore behind it that they created to answer a why is that island empty on the map question. So oh, cool, yeah, yeah. So next up, let's go back to a tavern. Uh, we talked about, you know, alleys and markets and guilds. So I think it's time to head back to the taverns. And there is a tavern here in the docks that is very unique. Uh, it is called the Moon and Owl Tavern. And what makes it so unique is that it is a kobold tavern, which is a thing very, very rarely found outside the kobold ghetto. And this stands near the Puffing Bridge, close to where the mine gangs enter the city when they return from the pits. Uh, a little side note here again is when you look at the map and you look at the location, the location pinned on the map is a little different than what's described in the book as being close to Puffing Bridge, which is yeah. a little, uh, little further, you know, away. So you can move it if you want, do with it what you want. But in case you're wondering, you know, there is a little bit of discrepancy on the map compared to what the book says. And then. You'll find that uh, here in this in this kobold tavern uh, that humans and dwarves are not welcome here. The language spoken in the tavern is draconic, and their menu caters to kobold tastes. So it is a tavern that is going to be open from sundown to sun up, as the kobolds aren't out during the day. They're generally down underground in the mines during the day, and then they come out at night, and that's where they you know you'll find the kobolds on the streets of the city. So the kobolds themselves kind of sit at their tables and uh, benches by like tribe or by working of kind of affiliations, things like that. And this place apparently has this enormous grizzled dire weasel that kind of serves as the moon and owl's mascot. They say that she can detect an elf or a gnome by smell and has dragged more than one of those visitors screaming into her burrow. So keep that in mind if you go, uh, especially if you are a, uh, you know, a, an elf or a gnome, which the kobolds do not like, you might be attacked by a dire weasel. But I kind of get this feeling that any non-kobold who enters is going to get some looks, right? Like imagine your party walking in and there's everything going quiet. The music stops, everybody stops talking, and they just stare at you. You hear the tink of like a knife on a table and that's about it. That that I feel like that's what's going to happen if you walk into this place and you're not a kobold. However, if you go uh, with maybe a, a well-known kobold, uh, somebody who you know that that the party has helped, somebody like uh, Black Eye, who I've mentioned before, I use in my game, may be acceptable, and uh, because Black Eye has some pull among the kobolds, uh, and it could be a good place for like information on the kobold side of things at the dock if you're doing some kind of investigation. So. You know, use this place when you need it, but keep in mind that unless you have the right circumstances, you may be very unwelcome. Um, so you may be prudent to get the help of a friendly you know, a kobold who's friendly to your cause or something like that to help you out in this kind of location. So I have not uh, been to this location myself yet. Uh, I haven't really had a need for it, but 
I just like the flavor of it. Like, I like the idea it's just all cobalt tavern. Like, walking in, you would just feel like, uh, I'm in the wrong place. So, could be a cool one. I don't, yeah. know, I don't know if you've been there or not, but... I, I kind of envision it as the Katina in Star Wars. And, 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 and as soon as, like, non-cobalts walk in, you know, the band just suddenly stops. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, we don't serve their kind in here. Yeah. <laughs> You're human. They have to wait outside. Yeah. You, you may be politely asked to leave or the uh, dire weasel <laughs> drag you yeah. exactly. into, into her burrow for a feast. So, yep. so hey, uh, why don't we wrap up this episode with uh, one more tavern, the Broken Ooh. Seal Tavern. Yes. And uh, where you have this, is, <laughs> this, is, this is one of the more – more interesting uh, taverns in addition to uh, the one that Joe uh, just talked about. And this one is located deep in the gullet. And I don't know why it's called the gullet. You know, maybe it's just a pejorative name for the, uh, for the area, you know, because of the um, status of, of the folks that live there. But uh, I, I don't know why it's called the gullet, but anyway, like that's where the worst, the worst kind of funnels into the gullet. You know, it's like, yeah. Things get progressively worse the deeper into the gullet you get. Right, right, and and this is kind of this this tavern is is really a, a good description of of what you just said, Joe, because uh, this is where the city's worst scum and villainy uh, seem to settle. This tavern, the Broken Seal Tavern, is the headquarters of the Cloven Nine. Uh, they are a gang of infernal tieflings that were once the city's premier gang for extortion, gambling. And most of all, diabolism. We'll talk more about the Cloven Nine because uh, the gangs of uh, Zobek, uh, you know, deserve their own episode. Some changes have happened uh, uh, with the uh, Cloven Nine. And uh, this is kind of your mafia social club. The captains and the gangs, lieutenants, all the foot soldiers. This is where they gather to drink cheap wines and tell whopping lies about their debaucheries and the plundering of barge shipments. Uh, but the gang has been busily rebuilding and fortifying their practices after re rediscovering their kind of their their north star for lack of a better word. Their their previous <laughs> leader uh, Akkad uh, was murdered. Uh, that was one of their founders. And since since then, you know, they've kind of recovered a little bit and the tavern have seen a uh, renewed exuberance uh, with uh, with its patrons, you know, again, largely the uh, members of the Cloven Nine. So uh, the, bar, uh, the bar itself is largely below ground. There is a short flight of stairs leading down to the cellar and it's well stocked with barmaids and thugs and spirits of all kinds. Their primary modes of entertainment are gambling and wenching, as it's uh, stated in the book, uh, with the occasional dogfight, you know, just for uh, variety. The Broken Seal, though, is one of the more arcane sites in the city. It's, it's, sort of, it's, it's near the uh, Collegium, and uh, it has a reputation for black magic and diabolism, uh, which makes it unpopular uh, with the masters of the uh, Collegium. So, you know, there can be some tension there. There could be some adventure opportunities where the Collegium wants you to infiltrate the Cloven Nine if you happen to have a tiefling in your party. A lot, lot of opportunity there, too. A diabolism, you know, is kind of like a, a worship of devils, the hells. And this is also a, a, a way that you can incorporate the lore of the 11 hells into your game through your PC's association with uh, certain members of the uh, Cloven Nine. 
but so far nothing resembling an arcane crime can be conclusively linked to this place. But the the Cloven Nine is rich with lore. I'm I'm really looking forward to uh, spending a uh, episode talking about uh, this particular um, organization. I think you'll agree that uh, the Cloven Nine has has some rich lore to it. Yeah, it, it's a great guild. I mean, a, a great gang. I'm actually using it both in my my main game right now with my big group and my daughter's game. So, uh, you know, the the Silken Skyward is another hangout of the Cloven Nine. So. That's who she encountered uh, at the end of our last session. She doesn't know that yet, but as members of the Cloven Nine, uh, mm-hmm. so it, it is it is a fascinating guild and I our gang. And I agree, we we need to give them possibly a whole episode because there's a lot uh, a lot of information on them, and they are they're super cool. So um, I'm looking forward to diving into that one. More. Yeah, in fact, the the cults and other kind of nefarious societies is really what what kind of brings uh midgard to life you know there's there's a, a publication by uh, cobalt press uh, that talks about all of the gangs and uh, secret societies i encourage you to uh, purchase that if you need an antagonist cults are a great bad guy yeah actually i just got that book uh that's the cult and secret societies book and that's actually uh, the only way to get that now is uh print on demand over on uh drive through so if you don't have that book, check it out. It is so good. Like I just, I just got it finally and started reading through it. I'm like, oh, this is this is gonna be fun. So there's a lot you can do in Zobek uh, with it. And it's funny when you're reading a Clockwork book, they have some of the flavor text. A lot of it has to do with devils and cults and stuff like that that are operating in those back alleyways. So take advantage of all of that. It's it's really really cool stuff. So, but with all that said. I think that kind of wraps us up on the Docks District, and I think it's time to go into our Creature Showcase. Yeah. Hey, I got a good one for you today, so let me let me get this uh, set up. I'm jealous of this one. I'm, I'm mad you took this one. I wanted this one. <laughs> <laughs> go for it. Yeah. Well, your party's in Zobex Cartways on their way to Lilyfor, attempting a shortcut that takes them near some rumored wizard's lab. The tunnel you're in is large and mined from living rock, but it's dry, smooth, and round, and at least 20 feet in diameter. Even the air is dry. Are we lost in a brand new sewer section? Why are the walls so clean? You're in awe of the size of this tunnel, and one of your companions decides to break the silence with a joke. Ah, we must be below the wealthy district of Zobek. This tunnel is clearly designed to move a lot of their Ponzi shit. I'm sure their shit smells like flowers, you know, in a, in the most sarcastic tone you can imagine. But after several minutes of walking, there's a noticeable change in the air as you near a bend in the tunnel. The, ar- the air is smelling damp, and and it smells like the ocean beach. What? Your, your nostrils pick up this resinous aroma of pine trees mixed in with the scent of salty and minerally sand dunes and the smell that comes from marine matter and seaweed washing to shore by ocean waves. As you round the bend, the smell is more prominent and you see something spectacular. Right in front of you, in the light of your torch, you see a giant shark swimming in this huge fishbowl circling a myriad of shells, a small castle, and multiple treasure chests overflowing with gold. What? (laughs) 
<laughs> but then you have this wandering tentacle tendril that comes out of the fishbowl and it, and it just starts to meander down uh, uh, towards you. And when the end of the tendril stops close to your face, it mimics your likeness by grafting the form of your face onto its end. And within it, you see a reflection of your face and the refraction of the torchlight. It's mesmerizing. It's almost hypnotic. But when you reach out to touch it, your attention changes when the blob of water starts to roll towards you and the tendril changes to a fist hitting you pretty hard in the face. Roll initiative. Now, this creature is the giant shark bull ooze, probably one of Cobalt Press's most fun and unique monsters ever. When I first saw that, I was like, what the? Choose your own expletive. You can find it in the Creature Codex, and this critter can be used to fit thematically within just about any urban uh, campaign or underground storyline, or just be an unexpected surprise that is dangerous enough to challenge your players. And, and perhaps some type of mad mage built a dungeon built around the idea that this weird shark ooze is, is lurking inside it, and the party can win a great reward if they are able to defeat it. Or, or maybe the Collegium in Zobek has a new aquarium built by a wizard who recently joined the faculty to house her pet shark. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> so to quote the lore from this book, a shark on dry land may not be very threatening, but a shark that shares its life force with a massive ooze is a different beast. It draws in its prey with the promise of treasure. And so the lore continues, you know, this mobile ball of ooze and the shark was created by some mentally addled lich who wanted to distract adventurers from his phylactery and thought this thing with a valuable treasure would be a tempting target that would kill intruders or make them think that they've won since uh, they defeated it and took the treasure. So how do you fight this kind of critter? Well, a smart caster would choose something bound to kill a watery creature quick. Lightning. Au contraire, mon ami. The shark, the giant shark bull ooze has immunity to lightning damage. Now that will be a, a tremendous surprise. I cast lightning bolt. Thank you. Your turn is over. <laughs> but, uh, but you think something made of liquid is going to be vulnerable to lightning, but nah. But not only is it immune to lightning damage, it actually receives a buff from the lightning attack and deals an extra 1d4 damage in its attacks for one minute. So that's that's kind of fun to hit back your your PCs with. But uh, this creep, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. Uh, uh, but it, it doesn't, but it, doesn't yeah. <laughs> it doesn't say you can't, you know, um, the creature's a big eater, you know, so the magic within the giant shark bowl requires great energy to maintain. And as a result, the uh, creature is constantly hungry. So it has multi-attack, one from the shark and one from the ooze. So the shark bites and the pseudopod uh, does bludgeoning damage and it hits hard. 3d10 plus six of damage. Ultimately, up to 36 points of damage. And if the PC does not have a lot of its hit points, you know, so, you know, it, it, it takes some damage, you know, from the creature, the shark's bite uh, has advantage. 
So that's a, that's a nice additional buff to the uh, lightning damage because you know one of your casters is going to hit it with yeah. some lightning. Uh, it also has a wide latitude for engulfing PCs. A giant shark moves up to its speed, which is 20 feet. While doing so, it can enter a large or smaller creature's space. And whenever the bowl enters the creature's space, the creature must make a DC 16 deck saving throw. And on the failed save, the bowl enters the creature's space and the creature takes uh, another 3d10 plus 6 of piercing damage and is engulfed. So an engulfed creature can't breathe. It's restrained. It'll take uh, more damage at the start of each of the uh, bull's turn. And uh, when the bull moves, the engulfed creature moves with it. So, you know, don't worry. Your PC won't die from uh, suffocation. You know, it'll die from hit point loss uh, since uh, PCs can hold their breath longer than your, your Navy SEAL in real life. Uh, but, you know, it's a nice way to uh, create tension. You know, you're suffocating. What are you going to do? Your ally can come reach in and grab uh, your PC and pull it out. Uh, it requires a DC 15 strength check. Uh, but while while rescuing your friend that in, inside the bowl, you're going to take some, the other PC is going to take some damage uh, as well. And it's and it's still the 3D10 of damage. Uh, because the the shark is going to start uh, 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 attacking you, attacking your arms, uh, and he and the shark doesn't want you taking its meal, you know, from from it and the ooze. So the way I play this creature is, if a rescuer fails the check, I'll roll a d20 and add its plus six strength modifier to it, and if the creature rolls is higher than the than the uh, DC, uh, the rescuer is pulled into the ooze and engulfed. Uh, since it can hold, you know, up to six medium creatures uh, or one large creature or uh, uh, multiple smaller creatures inside it at the same time. So, you know, you may ask, you know, am I cheating, you know, by adding this mechanic uh, to the uh, to the capabilities of the critter? Um, I, I, I say no. You know, I'm playing the creature as hard as the PCs are attacking it. And I always remind my players that there's no rule in the, any RPG system that requires you to fight to the death. You know, they don't need to beat the monster. They simply need to rescue any engulfed companions and get the hell out of there. But if they want to fight to the bitter end, all the more fun for me. That's all, uh, that's all I can say. But um, I, I recommend that you play this uh, critter as a means to bloody up the PCs and force them to take another route or just discourage them from sneaking into the wizard's collegium office while you're investigating the disappearance of a few students. Um, I also recommend that you use this creature in a, in a silly and offbeat manner. It's, it's, it's such a kooky creature uh, to, to play, so, you know, have fun with it. Uh, use it as a surprise, use it as a red herring, or use it as a boss in any, any adventure. The shark and the ooze that make up the giant shark bowl ooze there are both uh, symbiotic attachments, and they would be doomed uh, without one another. They can't survive without one another. So it's a good opponent for a, a resourceful uh, group of PCs. Yeah. And I think you said uh, this is like a CR8 creature, right? Yeah. And so like a group of level fives or so uh, would be good for this. I've always wondered how to use this this one because like, you know, I never flipping the creature codex and seeing it. It just, it makes you stop. You're like, what is this? And uh, it's just, it's one of the coolest pieces of art. And just one of the, definitely one of the most unique creatures that you said that, that I think Cobalt Press has ever put out. And I want to use it in a game 
so bad. So you kind of gave me some inspiration on how I might use this in my game at some point. That would be a cool sewer encounter. Like yeah. just this giant blob, uh, this giant fishbowl uh, in the sewer. So it's big. Like you look at the art and it's like, I would say maybe five or six times the height of a normal human. I mean, it's big. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that that's just such a cool one. It is, it's definitely one of the coolest creatures in any book hands down um yeah gotta run gotta run stat stat wise it's a huge creature so that's four squares i mean just imagine the surprise of your players you know walking up and seeing a shark you know swimming swimming around what looks like a modern day aquarium so yeah so i I don't know if that's one of the creatures that came about you know from uh one of the uh uh, backer submissions, submissions, yeah, you know, but uh, it, it it had to be one of the 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 coolest most. It is the coolest most iconic Cobalt Press monster uh, that yeah, that, I love it that there is. Yeah, Go. I love it. What do you have for us? So I'm going to continue the theme of river monsters from last week. Uh, so I got another one for you here. This one's a bit more terrifying though. So uh, you know, a, a trip down the river is no pleasure cruise, especially uh, when the river is in a place like the Margrave Forest or uh, Margot. In Midgard, ley lines kind of follow the land like rivers and often run along them. And more often than not, the barrier between the world and the realm of shadows is really thin here. Uh, This is the perfect breeding ground for more sinister creatures. So today, uh, the river runs rapid and deep. And the barge rocks and sways, and you hold on for dear life. But then a shout comes, Man overboard! You try to act quickly before your companion is swept away. You toss the rope and begin to pull him in. Then skeleton hands begin to reach out of the water and encase him, pulling him down. And as he struggles to hold on, you see multiple skeleton-like forms in the water. And then another form rising from the water with the face of death and armor made of the river itself, a green staff of flowing water in his hand. This is a shadow river Lord and he is commanding some shadow skeletons. Now I'm not going to get into the shadow skeletons themselves, but you can find them as well on page uh, 342 of the creature codex, but the shadow river Lord is what I want to focus on here. And he's on uh, uh, page 327 in creature codex. So the Shadow River Lord, they make their homes where dangerous rivers wear away the barrier between the mortal world and the dark Feylands. And often this is a place where rivers run super fast and deep. And if someone dies in the river, uh, the, the River Shadow Lords or the Shadow River Lords will take their soul uh, to the Fey Realm to be used as a currency or a means to gain further power. So you do not want to die here. <laughs> yeah. uh, I would imagine too, right? If you die here and they take your soul, uh, you might not be able to be resurrected because your soul's not there. It's not, it hasn't gone to its normal place. It's been stolen. So, I mean, that could lead to a whole nother quest to save your, your companion's soul. But these creatures, they're, they're CR9. They're, they are uh, resistance, not, not only to cold, but to fire, to necrotic and to non-magical physical attacks. So they are... Um, they're a, a tough cookie to fight, and they're immune to poison. They can't be charmed. They can't be grappled, paralyzed, petrified, poisoned, restrained, knocked prone, uh, or have exhaustion. Uh, so they are not easy to hurt, and they're not easy to control. They're able to turn uh, water. Uh, 
and move, or they can turn into water. I'm sorry, they can turn into water and move through even small spaces. So, you know, they can slip aboard a ship easily if they wanted to through a small, you know, hole or whatever. Um, as far as attacks themselves go, uh, they have basically three things. They have a green fire staff, which is their melee attack, and it does uh, bludgeoning and fire damage. Uh, and then they have their shadow bolt, which is their ranged attack, which does necronic and cold damage. Um, so they can kind of do both there. They have uh, multi attack, which lets them do uh, one of those one of those attacks uh, twice. They can't do one of each; but they can do one or the other two times. Um, so use that well, but. Their main thing, their their cool ability, in my opinion, is their final one, which is uh, a Shadow Geyser, which uh, is an ability that works on a recharge of a, of a six, uh, and this is a thirty foot cone of of shadowy water that comes from its staff. So it points its staff, and this cone of water comes out, and any creature hit by this by it makes a a, a dexterity save, or they take sixty six necrotic damage and sixty six cold damage. So uh, kind of as I mentioned in, in my intro, they often have these shadow skeleton servants that uh, they're, they're commanding. So make sure you uh, have a look at that creature, uh, their CR2s, uh, and have a few of those in the fight as well to kind of round out uh, a, a, you know, a tense fight on the river. Because you got, if anybody goes overboard, they're getting pulled down. You have these skeletons crawling onto the ship. You have this river lord who literally kind of would almost come out of the water on like a jet of water. Like you won't see feet. He'll have just water lifting him up, kind of like uh, King Titan in, in The Little Mermaid, how he kind of comes out of the water with the water like lifting him up. That would almost be what this guy does is the water, you know, propels him up. And he's almost made of water and and bone and his armor is like water made solid and um i mean he they are terrifying and when you're when you're on a boat on the river and you're fighting these creatures that are trying to pull you in and take you down much like the lorelei i mean it, it could be a tense and scary fight so i kind of picked these because we've been talking about the docks we've been talking about the river we've been talking about travel on the river and if you know the the margrave forest we haven't really got into yet, but it's this big magical forest right near Zobek. And there's a good chance your players are going to be going into there at some point. And the rivers that run through there seem like they'd be the perfect breeding ground for a creature like this. Or if you head further north to, you know, the uh, the Ghoul Emporium lands and things like that, there is uh, a lot of potential, I think, for creatures like this in those areas on the rivers. So this could be a fun one. Yeah, it sounds like it. I think of this like this heart of darkness or apocalypse now, you know, type yeah. uh, creature. I like to bring horror in my games, you know, any any mm -hmm. chance I can. And uh, any way to kind of scare the PCs and, you know, kind of yeah. freak the players out a little. You know, I like to, exactly. I like to take it. Yeah. I, I like them to be panicking. I like when my players start panicking and they're like, oh God, oh God, oh God. <laughs> yeah. You know? Being like, on a barge or a boat, there's nowhere else for them to go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. like, I've I've had, like, encounters, like, ten, I, I love those intense encounters, like, you know, I, in one of my campaigns when, you know, it was right at the end, the, the, I almost killed the players, literally in the last session, and they just start going, wait, 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 <laughs> like, that's the best, is when they start bargaining with the DM, they're like, don't do this, you know you've done it right. Yeah, yeah, so, for sure. Yeah, so these could be a fun one. Like I said, I, I like these encounters that use uh, more than one type of creature, like a commander, and then like the smaller, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, 
troops, so to speak, and you kind of combine that encounter because they have the big guy to deal with, but they also have all the little ones you can't ignore because they'll overwhelm them. Um, so those type of encounters, I, I have a lot of fun with. So this was a, a really cool one. Those are great combinations because it kind of goes back to the older editions of of D and D where you had minions, and yep. it's 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 a, a mechanic that's still used in Pathfinder. Uh, mm-hmm. That uh, you know, y- you you have the the main guy and you have its uh, have its uh, assistance, and yeah, and it, it's just you know too too often you know we 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 tend to and I'm I'm guilty of it myself of of creating kind of these monolithic encounters with like one creature and having yeah. the different creatures with different abilities some some minions can be used as cannon fodder by 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 the main creature you know kind of to thin out the uh, resources of the PCs so you know even if a creature doesn't necessarily have uh you know companions Bring some in, you know, find some that uh, that makes sense, you know, vary up the um, uh, the capabilities of 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 combat uh, to yeah. to really challenge your PCs. Um, I also, you know, use use uh, 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 minions like that to to wear down the resources of of spellcasters and also directly attach attack the spellcasters because those guys always like to be in the be- background. They're the kind of the field artillery. And uh, a lot, you know, a lot of them don't get, you know, take a lot of hit points. So I want to make sure that they, uh, they feel some pain as, as, as well and, uh, and have to do yeah. something other than just cast a spell, you know. Yeah, you have a weapon, use it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And Cobalt Press does a good job in their in their monster books of directing you towards the creature. Like in this case, it specifically calls out those other creatures. So there is a lot of, uh, you'll find that a lot in the Cobalt Press books. It says, you know, uh, this creature often works with this creature and references the book and the page. So they, they're really good about, uh, about that. And you can find some great, you know, design some great encounters around that uh, using the Cobalt Press books in general. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was that, that was that was my choice for the week. Yeah, great, great choice, great choice. Yeah, well, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed it, Joe. How can people reach you? Uh, so you know, you can always find me uh, on YouTube at GM Toolbox uh, and on TikTok and Facebook and Instagram and all those great places. Uh, just look for GM Toolbox. My Twitter is uh, GM underscore Toolbox. So keep that in mind. Uh, and of course, you can always find me on the Midgard Adventures Discord server at GM Toolbox. How about you? You can reach me on the Midgard Adventures Discord server and Twitter at Clayton Thompson. That's Thompson without a P. If you want to explore more about Midgard, the Discord server is a great place. It's it's a a server of independent fan-based, and it's a cooperative group, and uh, we are affiliated with Cobalt Press. And so there you can find a lot of Midgard lore. We share tips and tricks, answer questions. And uh, as we talked about earlier, we offer organized play games, both online and IRL in certain locations. Community is open to everyone, particularly those new to Midgard and role-playing games in general. And we have a dedicated channel for that Midgard show on the server where you can post a comment and talk about the show's content. You can also do it uh, down in the comments uh, below on YouTube. Come hang out, you know, visit Mead Hall. Uh, visit the other channels, the adventure channels, the bestiary channels. Uh, we even have channels on how to uh, convert uh, that talk about converting uh, uh, wizards content uh, to uh, the Midgard setting. So there's an invitation uh, available below in the show notes. And uh, the podcast also has a, uh, a Twitter and it's at that Midgard show. So, yeah, uh, make sure you check that all out. And if you like our show, make sure you hit the like button. Uh, make sure you subscribe to our channel. 
we're on all the major podcast platforms as well. So please subscribe on your favorite one. Leave us a positive comment or a five-star review. Uh, and even better, just you know, spread the word about that Midgard show. We've been getting great feedback from everybody. We really appreciate it. We're looking forward to doing more of this for you and hearing more of your feedback. So please, you know, leave those comments, participate, and uh, you know, we'll try to respond to everybody. So yeah, and uh, that's it for today, guys. So remember, uh, as Wolfgang Barr says, strip it for parts and make it your own. Thanks for joining us. Take care, everyone. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>